Tonight's uh, presentation, the, the Changing Scene, Glimpses of Colonies Past, is a slide presentation that will be presented to us by the very lovely Miss Barbara Roosh, who really needs no introduction before this group, but I will nevertheless give you a few details. Barbara, as you all know, is the research assistant in the uh, town historian's office. She works there under a federal grant, and she is a uh, lifelong uh, resident of the, of the town of Colony in Loudonville, correct? She graduated from Shaker High School and then attended Casanova College near Syracuse. While at, at Casanova, she interned at the Lorenzo State Historic Site. I guess this is one of the sites handled by the uh, uh, Education Department, correct? After completing her studies at Casanova, Barbara transferred to Skidmore College, where she did a Bachelor of Arts degree in American Studies, and she graduated in 1977. And from that time to the present has been working in our uh, town hall's uh, historian's office. At this time, I would like to present to you Barbara. Well, it's nice to be here on this end. Usually I'm the one watching all the other lectures. Uh, to really appreciate the slides, I hope everyone has a good imagination for it. some of these are hidden gems in the town. Uh, after all, the character of this town is, is now urban and suburban. And there's alternating stretches of commercial and residential areas. And through these slides, I hope to show and trace the early sites of development. So it will take a feat of the imagination to realize that some of these structures were standing all by themselves or um, with different surroundings than are there now. Could I have the first slide? Here we have the Beers map of 1866, and this is the town of Waterville, and Colony wasn't incorporated until 1895, leaving only the city of Waterville, but is basically basically the uh, same outline that it is today. And the reason Colony experienced such rapid growth is its strategic location as the crossroads of the Hudson and Mohawk Rivers. And in uh, 1797, Albany was, was decided on as the seat of the state government. And the Erie Canal being established in 1825 also added more trade activity but with improved transportation facilities in general, we um, experienced a tremendous growth, growth, which is still happening today. In fact, in the last 30 years, the population has almost tripled. 
Road was very instrumental in this development uh, during the French and Indian Wars and um, other uh, wars thereafter, it was a main military route north. In, uh, previously to 1850, it was built as a plank road, the Albany-Mohawk plank road. And de development started to in increase right along the road, being only four miles outside Albany. Uh, many structures along this road uh, have the integrity and historical and architectural significance to still merit inclusion on the National Register of Historic Places. Uh, there's about 35 now that are found along the road that uh, are in the process of being nominated for the, the Loudonville Multiple Resource Area. Here we have uh, the 1883 lithograph of Loudonville. This is the first spot you would reach outside of Albany. And several of the buildings happen to fall into the Loudonville area that have, that hopefully have made the National Register. And uh, they provide valuable sources in understanding the development of Loudonville, but also uh, in, as the town in general. And uh, appreciating a community, I think you should look at its totality or, or all its parts and, and what they say. And I think the lithograph helps to aid in this. And this is 1883, so it would have been the, at its peak development architecturally and uh, quite fashionable. In fact, to have a lithograph at this time meant it was commissioned by the residents. So, of course, obviously they were proud and quite sure of their success. And here they are outside the evil, evils of the city. And to have this commissioned, you know, shows quite a, a community pride. Uh, Hal and Tenney in 1886 described the area and it was considered one of the most desirable suburbs of Albany. And Hallen Tenney, if some of you don't know, is a county atlas. And uh, it just describes the uh, beautiful drive and the resort-like uh, attractions and residents of the businessmen from Albany. And, and at this time, we did get a transition. First, they came because of the beautiful surroundings to get away from the heat of the summer, but it was so, so nice that with the improvement of utilities and the road, uh, we get them converting these houses into year-round resorts. I mean, <laughs> year-round residences. Okay. Now, some of these um, I had blown up to show you. Now, the configurations of these buildings aren't totally accurate, but you have to allow for artistic license. And this is the John C. Houston Mansion, and uh, it's right before Crumity Road on the left-hand side, and it has a mansard roof in the Italianate style, which is very monumental, and I'm sure Mr. Houston was very uh, 
wealthy with his lumber business in Albany. Also present the trustees at the Union Free School, which was directly across the road from this. Uh, here we have it today. Now it uh, needs a little restoration, and it's quite—it is quite a hidden gem of a place because it, in front of it, is attached to Laville Community Church. But they're aware of this, and I think they're going to try to do something about it. Uh, here's the schoolhouse. Notice the little kids running around, <laughs> and the outhouses, and. Uh, we have a picture of it around the turn of the century, but it was circa 1811 and one of the earliest schoolhouses in the state and built on Van Rensselaer land and all the children from the area attended this. In fact, many people still remember it became a residence in the 1940s and here it is today. Then across that we have the Albion Ransom House and uh, the Ransoms manufactured the Ransom stove, which was a very uh, popular stove in the mid-1800s. And they lived in this house for uh, at least till the turn of the century. And Dr. Kratz and Mrs. Kratz own it. And they're doing quite a lot of uh, restoration and finding more uh, dates because you, it has been changed. In fact, there are half timbers in the basement that are possibly the date from the 1790s. That would be the earliest part of the house. And as the wealthy uh, people stayed, they also adapted to the latest styles. And here we have it um, about 1830s, I mean 1930s. Uh, further up Cromedy, we have this little salt box-like house, which is on the one on the right, and that dates circa 1800. Uh, Mrs. Burt lived there at the uh, turn of the century, and uh, she always remarked on how dusty the road got, and the chickens would all run out and take their daily dust baths, and the men would try to keep it down by oiling it. Uh, didn't really work, but you couldn't really complain. And uh, it's still there. It's been restored and painted, and, but the architectural lines are quite the same. And then up the road a little further, we have the uh, Judge Shepherd House, circa 1850. And this was called Prospect Place at that time, and it does have quite a view. In the 1880s, Frederick Townsend bought it and called it Towns End which was quite appropriate because there really wasn't much else around. And notice the, the outbuildings to that, and here it is today, quite hidden by all the new houses in front of it, and still using the uh, outbuildings as uh, very much a part of the whole area. Here we are back on the Ladenville Road again, and this is a farmhouse, uh, 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 Mr. Aspinwall, of the Aspinwall family, very early, uh, lived here at, in 1883, but it, it dates from about 1820 and was one of the earlier farms before all the businessmen started moving in. And uh, owned, this is about the uh, Colonial Green area. And here we have it today with federal and some Greek Revival uh, architectural features which uh, date it earlier than the fashionable Victorian ones. Next to that, there was another little farmhouse, which 
uh, one a Lansing owned of the old Lansing family, which f you find everywhere in town. And uh, this wasn't even labeled at that at that time, but in uh, 1907, Peter K. Diedrich, who owned a house further down the road, uh, bought it and built his Colonial Revival, which is quite uh, magnificent. In fact, today even here we have the front door with the half shell motif over the door and just the other uh, architectural features. In fact, it's almost more than academically correct when they're trying to copy an earlier uh, style in 1907. Uh, then we have the Edward Easton house, and here it is, and here today. So it's the shingle style, and he was um, in charge of uh, construction of the Capitol and also involved in the school as a trustee. And uh, the the George L. Stedman house, but uh, this was his uh, year-round residence, but before that, in the 1860s, uh, Dr. Alden March had his summer house here, and uh, he was one of the founders of the Albany Medical College in about uh, 1838. And next to it was um, a house which is not labeled, but it was also of the Stedman family, and we have it with wings added onto it, shingling, and again, the shingle style, sort of the McKim, Mead, and White, Newport style, very, very much an American uh, style. Uh, it was developed over here and not, does not have a, the European counterpart that most would have. And next to that, we have the Italianate Villa uh, style, and here we have it, Dr. Moore lived here, a, v a veterinarian, and uh, you can see the picturesque qualities um, which they were trying to achieve at this time. And here it is today, and this is another instance of taste change, and they're trying to give it the more colonial look, and not the, uh, the um, okra or colors that would blend in with the trees. Uh, another house, which is a uh, Victorian or Victorian Gothic of about 1870 uh, is is still there, and this is is quite true to color. I'm sorry, this isn't color, but it it still blends in with the surroundings, uh, being be muted colors. And uh, Miss Amy Stetson lived here, who taught in the school at one time, and her father also had maintenance of the Plank Road, which was quite a job, and. Uh, uh, the extensiveness of this house uh, can be seen still today as it. Mm, let me get to my slide. Well, this uh, is more of the Queen Anne style and, and the different angles of the roof and multi pane glass windows, and, and it's all texture and blending in with the surroundings and also the outbuilding still being very much used. And Peter K. Diedrich had his house here before he built the 1907, and later this was his mother's house. But as you can see, he was very prosperous, uh, agricultural machinery and patenting inventions pertaining to this. And here we see a water tower, and he even owned all the land down to, to Little's Lake, and we have another water tower there. And that is the uh, Townsend Mori House and 
uh, somehow the slide didn't get in. But here we have Loudon Cottage, and this has the ghostly uh, stories attached to it. But uh, uh, Senator Ira Harris, U.S. Senator, uh, lived, had, this was definitely a summer home, never living here all year round. And this is from an 1851 map, so it is earlier than the lithograph, but it dates even earlier, the 1820s. Now, Senator Ira has cl close friend of President Lincoln, and uh, he was in Washington when, when uh, Lincoln was ass assassinated, but uh, his daughter, Clara, and her fiance, Major Rathbone, were in the box at Ford's Theater with the Lincolns. Uh, they were very young, but see, no one really wanted to go to the theater with Mrs. Lincoln because she wasn't known for her pleasant temperament. And uh, while there, Booth assassinated the president, and his blood splattered all over uh, the dress that Clara was wearing. And for some reason, she bricked it up naturally in this house when she came home. And uh, ever since then, there were many stories of Lincoln appearing and also Clara appearing crying and finally at one time it was run as a boarding house and they decided that the guests just not would come anymore if this would continue and they burned the dress. But uh, Loudoun Cottage was so named because Ira Harris always maintained that Lord Loudoun camped the first night on his property on his way north in 1755 during the French and Indian Wars. And here we have it. Uh, before, it was moved south a few acres from where it originally was. And notice it on the right and the buildings attached to it. Now here it is after being moved with wings added. And this is, isn't just directly across Cherry Tree Road in about 1927. And here it is much like today and the Prenderville House, which was one of the buildings that was also with it on the lithograph and part of Ira Harris's land holding. And at the corner we have Elias Ireland's house, and uh, this was no, no, known as Ireland's Corners. And he bought this house, which um, in 1845 was owned by Van Rensselaer, and uh, bought the land surrounding all the corners and uh, 35 acres with this house and uh, it was just a farmhouse and here it is today but really the road has changed so much that you can't even see it almost now so it isn't quite the uh, scenic place it used to be. Uh, Ira Harris also um, owned land around as did Samuel Bacon and many of the other people, not just in one spot. And here we have the um, uh, configuration of the uh, store, post office, blacksmith shops, and uh, these were uh, established in 1870, but before that the store was across the road from where it is now. And uh, it was always maintained that it was brought up from the agricultural fairgrounds in Menands and um, used as a tavern and then Ireland established the first post office in 1850. But when Ireland died in 1870, Samuel Bacon of the coffee and spice firm uh, moved, the, moved the store across the street and 
It was run by Ralph Gove. Here's an early picture of it. And there's Ralph Gove standing in front of it. And he was also a town supervisor around the turn of the century. And here it is when Arnold Bryan owned, owned it. And you, it was a very much a focal point in the community. And uh, Bacon also, with the firm Bacon and Stickney, built some of the houses right along the road. And three identical houses in the uh, Victorian Gothic about it's 1875, and here we still have two left, Arnold Bryan's and another one down the road. And also on Menand's Road, a few houses, and Mrs. Nellie Bacon lived in the first one. Um, and there she is with uh, Dr. Moore's wife in front of Woodline Cottage, as it was called. And today it's there, but the architectural detail has been lost. Another little house that uh, Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Willett lived in, ac across from the store, just about on Route 9. And here it is at the turn of the century. Um, shows the monumental effect that the, uh, and the heaviness and the uh, polychromatic slate roof that, that made these houses more fashionable, even if they weren't of the mansion stature. And her husband and son were also Albany architects and builders. And here it is today. Um, after the 1883 lithograph was done, we have uh, the establishment of the Loudon Hall by the residents, each paying for shares to esta establish uh, a community hall type building. It was built by Richard Wickham in 1888 and it was the, the residents desire to associate themselves together for Sunday school purpose and maintaining the library. Of course many plays and entertainments and other activities were subsequently uh, held there. Notice the capped tower and the finial on the top of that which is lost in later years, plus the addition of the storefront window, and uh, painted also white, which wasn't the uh, uh, style of the time. It would have been all natural. And um, here's a lithograph by itself of, of the DDT Morris Middlebrook Farm, and that was of the Ross Corps and Ladden Heights area. And DDT Moore owned a 25-acre tract, which he uh, bought from Van Rensselaer and uh, had quite a successful farm. But of course, uh, most people maintain that he always did so well because he also was um, one of the propri proprietors and um, founders of, of the um, New York Central Stockyards in West Albany when it was moved there. And in 18... 56, he even got the award uh, as the best farm in the state and called it Middlebrook State Premium Peach Farm and Orchard. And also was one of the founders in 1857, the Al Albany Agricultural Society. And here it is today, and the roof has been raised with dormers added for more room, but mainly it's still the Greek Revival farmhouse style. Now, here we have Old Ladden Road facing towards Latham's Corners. 
Now, uh, architectural style is one way of telling the age of a house and if there's many in an area, the age of the neighborhood, or what it was like or what was in our good taste. But many times a lot of research is needed because the structures are so remodeled or changed. And uh, this is uh, the case in Latham's Corners, first known as Townhouse Corners, then Van Rankin Corners, and 1870 William Latham establishing his hotel there and then being changed again to Latham's Corners. But looking at the streetscape today, you miss the, the good architectural details that were there at one time, and only by looking up at the cornices and roof lines can you actually see what, what, to what degree these buildings were and what it might have looked like. So uh, this is still Latham's Corners in the, in the four, in the, uh, at the at the corners where the crossing sign is. Now on the left here is Frank Young's store, and uh, it was later than the Arnold Bryan store. But uh, the post office not even being established in this store till 1899. The brick structure uh, is the powerhouse, which uh, was built in about 1902 when the Troy Schenectady. Uh, trolley line tracks were laid. Before this, uh, Route 7 was just a toll road built in about the 1800s, and it took a full day to go from Troy to Schenectady. So everybody was quite glad to see the construction of this, and that meant more development in the area. Uh, here it is, uh, Frank Young's store is today, and its apartments. And some of the features have been lost, but it's still quite, quite um, much architecturally uh, significant. With uh, the power, the power line still there, being painted white. And somebody said, "Well, why did you want that?" Well, I think the tracks are gone, but it still stands as 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 a short-lived but important time when transportation such as the trolley line, really helped uh, the rapid growth. But in fact, the brickwork is quite nice if you really look at it for just a powerhouse. You have to use your imagination a little. And here we are at the corners where Old Loudon Road crossed Route 7. And just to the right, where the building is cut off, was the Latham's Hotel. And next to that was the Peter Best Farm, which is now gone. And on the Left-hand side, we have the Woodard's store, and uh, you can see all the tires. So this this is a turn of the century photograph too. Um, I have I do not have another picture of the Latham Hotel as it was, but here it is today, and uh, it was run after. After William Latham, his son ran it, and then it was used um, by the state troopers, and their horses were even um, housed in it at the time when you still would have the police on horseback in the area. And uh, you can see Wooded store also, the roof line. And there it is today, and very much changed. Uh, Fort, for 
Further north on uh, the old Latin Row, we have the Gilson store, which is on the right here. And that was just a small grocery store, too. But uh, the first A&P moved in there. And uh, that was like the big thrill where everyone really welcomed that. And um, today, you cannot really imagine it as it was. And there it is. And across from this, we have uh, the church, which is still there. And uh, it was called the Reform, Reform Dutch Church of Rensselaer and Watervliet. And uh, Henry Runkle built it in 1817. And he's listed on census records as a carpenter and also lived in the town. And then it was used as Calvary Hall, as a meeting place for clubs and organizations. And now it's an associate's consulting engineer firm. Now, I want to contrast this with Newton's Corners. Now, Newton's Corners, uh, the integrity of the area has not been as disrupted, probably because the crossroads of Maxwell and Route 9 were not as major. And uh, there wasn't as many, as much transportation um, going, passing through the uh, corners. And uh, we have John Newton settling here and building his house between 1842 and 1859 and owning much of the ra land around. Uh, well, there it is. Okay. In 18, he was in, uh, the business of stoneware and uh, brick linings and things like that. But in uh, 1875, he sold it to uh, James Hill, Hills, who was very much a part of the uh, town, played a part in the town government, and also was a farmer and gardening. And here it is also at the uh, turn of the century. And there are some of the Hills uh, relatives sitting outside. And there it is today. And next door, we almost we have the uh, Methodist Church, and um, being in, established in 1838 there. But this building was not built until 1892. And Reverend Ireland, a local preacher, withdrew from the East Church and established the Independent Methodist Episcopal Church within closer proximity to other residents instead of going out to the other areas in the town. And we have it today. Much changed with siding on it. And the schoolhouse down the road is not there anymore. It's replaced by the North Colony School Administration. But the, ha but the schoolhouse was, uh, dates from about 1850s and then was, was torn down and built in 1919. But what this um, was on land from the John, donated from John Newton and Mr. Gilbert Waterman, and uh, other Sunday school meetings were held there from time to time, showing quite a lot of uh, religious tolerance at the time. Be, uh, John Newton being a Baptist and donating the land for the Newtonville Baptist Post Church, now the post office and on the National Register in 1973. 
Reverend William Arthur being the preacher while he lived in the town for about 20 years. And uh, notice the steeple in the, ba in the uh, background and in the foreground on the right is the Arthur House. Uh, it was built in the, around 1846 and then 1856 Reverend Arthur came to this town and also was the headmaster of a private boys' school in his home, and one of John Newton's sons attended there. Uh, it's quite changed, but you can still see the architectural lines as being the same house. And uh, nobody, not everyone knows that Arthur's in the Albany Cemetery, and I'll put a little plug in for him. And here's his grave and the plaque. Giving it. Uh, across from the uh, Newtonville Methodist Church was the Brewster store, and then Kemp's, and Kemp also had the post office in it, and later it was people, other people that today remember it as Hodges. But also the same idea of establishing the post office in the local general store. And ne next adjacent to that was the Brewster house. Um, in this picture, there's, it, there's a fence, and usually you would see fences in front of the houses, not just for the privacy, but also for the cattle drives to the stockyards. You wouldn't want them running all over your land. And here it is again with uh, Brewster's car outside, and he was town clerk for a while also. Well, it was Bruce, Mr. Brewster and his two sons. And they also had, around the corner on Maxwell Road, uh, the Brewster Carriage Manufacturers. And uh, it was established in 52. And even after the turn of the century, they uh, were repair still repairing sleighs and carriages, but also automobiles. And the house was built uh, circa 1840 and 50, so um, soon after when they built this and the house. Um, this, on the other side of Maxwell Road, to the, uh, to the west, we have this uh, layout of the land at the turn of the century, and you don't see v very many residential houses. But if you notice the house in the corner, Uh, this was a farmhouse, but quite, quite substantial. In fact, it's still there today, and um, in 1850 it shows up on a map with the name E. Merchant, but after, um, in later years, it was the Hankus home, and they had nurseries and uh, gardening, and uh, it shows that the land was very conducive to that. Um, on the, uh, the also, just on the outskirts of Newtonville, we have um, a house which Madame de la Tour de Pen came as fleeing the French Revolution. And she stayed at um, st a house built by Stephen Van Rensselaer in uh, 1794 to 1796, as indicated in her autobiography. The house burned down, but bricks were made on the property, and it was rebuilt in 1812, and there it is on the grounds of the St. Joseph Provincial House. 
um, moving to another section of town, Verdoy, Waterfleet Center, Morristown, those are the names that was given. We see Warner's store, which was earlier Morris's store, who came to the area. This is on Route 7. In fact, this will help. It's the country miss now. And um, at the time that uh, Morris came to the area in 1835, it was called Waterville Center. And he had a hotel, store, a post office, a blacksmith shop, same as Elias Ireland, the jack of all trades. And um, then we have, as you saw, Warner that owned it, and he had groceries and hardware. And then Mr. Dennison owned it, who later moved his store across from where Dolls is today. Uh, the name changed to Morristown, and then they realized that there were all their, another Morristown in the state, and the mail was getting all mixed up, so they had to choose something else. Uh, being the postmaster, uh, Burton Warner got the job of picking a name, and um, Verdoy was chosen. And here we have the Verdoy schoolhouse uh, built in about 1910. This picture was probably taken about 1912. And uh, it was used uh, till 1957. And uh, today it's just a place of storage. But the uh, need for schools dramatically changed for um, larger schools um, from the 1950s on. And then we see these kind of schools, these one-room schoolhouses being converted to other uses. And there it is storage. And also on Route 7 we have the Burmaster Barn. Now this barn was moved just before the turn of the century from uh, by the river up, up the road to where it is on the corner now of Burmaster Road and uh, Route 7. And the magnificent structure shows the, the prosperity and success of the, the uh, farm that it was with. The, the farm, uh, Burmaster Farm, is now underwater, um, established around 1700, and this was saved in when the Barge Canal was enlarged. Uh, on Mill Road, we have this house, and the, ha the part on the left, the small part on the left, was um, older. There was than the uh, main part, and uh, uh, there was a cellar hole under this, and um, speculation has it, especially from Art Johnson and a few other sources, that when Bleeker did his map and surveyed the uh, land belonging to Stephen Van Rensselaer, he either labeled this with a number and not a name, or it was just completely missed because it was so small. But to see this and to realize that it was next to the Waterville Mill and possibly the miller's residence. And this is t was taken probably uh, 1900s. And notice, uh, well, in the right-hand corner, very faded, you can see the house also. On Mill Road, this is on Mill Road. On the left-hand side, you're driving south. 
And there it is today with the creek there um, and no signs of the mill. And here we have Ford's Ferry Road, also um, the Mo Mohawk View area. And uh, the house on the right was built circa 1835, and Miss Dorothy Onderdonk's grandparents moved in, and, uh, in, in the 1860s. And then her parents, when they married in 1888, built the house on the left. And uh, it was called O Sunset Farm. And if you see the sunset t even today, you can see why it's just magnificent. And the old house has completely been changed by an architect who lives there now. But the Herbransons have kept the, ha the, ha the 1888 house very much um, intact, the integrity still there, and quite charming. Uh, at the bend of Ford's Ferry, there is a Ford's house. Uh, the Ford's had uh, their ferry down further down the road by where the camps are along Mohawk View now. But here we have the Michael Ford house, and this was built uh, 1811 and uh, belonged at one time to Cornelius Reynolds. Uh, in 1863, the premises were described as having an apple orchard, a wooden frame dwelling house, a barn, and other buildings being fenced in in a farmer-like manner. And uh, this is all on land, too, that Simon Fort had bought from Van Rensselaer. And here we have it with everyone posing. <laughs> uh, now we go to the Whitbeck Farm, which uh, really corresponds because the Whitbecks had a about 800 acres of land uh, reaching down to the Mohawk area and uh, the farm is on Route 9. Uh, the old houses scattered in the north and west part of town give us practical history lessons as to why they're built um, on the various sites. Sometimes common sense reasons are overlooked and the simplicity and logic of the builders for building them where they are um, gives us quite an idea as to where we could even look for some. In fact, these are probably the same places where the Indians camped when um, our chance and Paul we do archaeological s studies on sites. Um, sometimes they would find artifacts even earlier because of a spring being there or uh, a house because of the good farm land or sitting high on a knoll. And this Whitback house was built in about 1769, and uh, it's in poor condition now. About seven generations of Whitbacks have lived there, and Lucas Whitback uh, was a uh, surveyor of the uh, Van Rensselaer estate, and when the Cluett family sold it, uh, he was the one right there, very um, shrewd in land dealings because he knew where the good spots were being the surveyor. Uh, uh, further north, we have another farm. This wasn't built until uh, circa 1935. And it's very uh, monumental in effect, but it's, it's not quite that large. The Greek Revival, and it's on... Uh, 
the original 190 acres that Henry Fonda owned, who had an old homestead down near the Crescent Bridge. And when he died in 1835, they sold off the land in three parts, three parcels. And this was built by the Godfreys and called Elm Tree Farm. And uh, I think it's really unique to see this type of farmhouse because it embodies the I ideals of the new uh, republic at that time. And um, it was white to resemble the um, counterparts, the marble counterparts in Greece. And here it is today painted yellow. And that's just a modern uh, idea of how something uh, could be jazzed up, but it still needs work. But when well, that picture is about what the picture looked like anyway, <laughs> because it was a picture of the hills all covered with snow and showing the bleakness. And we think of these farms as, oh, aren't they nice? And these people were stuck out there maybe the whole winter and had to sustain their uh, existence on this bleak looking uh, land, which we think is so picturesque today because we can just get in the car and drive and drive away from it and say how nice it was. But uh, most buildings weren't uh, built in just a day. They stretch over a period of, of years. And uh, I'll begin with this one. Uh, additions or alterations were made to the structure continuously occupied or, or uh, the same family getting more money or uh, having more members living in, in the same house. And that's why these um, buildings are, are, aren't all academically correct in style, and they're usually a combination. And the Simmons house, which was um, parts of it date back to the uh, eight, 1740s and 60s, uh, which would be on the left and not in this picture, the, the earlier part. And um, in, 18, uh, in the 1840s, D. Simmons of the Simmons Axe Company in uh, manufacturers in Cohoes, which this is near. This is a Manor Avenue and sits on a nice scenic knoll overlooking Cohoes, and uh, it's still very beautiful. And this would have been the addition at that time uh, that he put on. And this is Manor Avenue also, and notice the stone house on the left, on the right. Now this stone house was also built by Sim Simmons in about 1850. And uh, it's still there and very much um, unchanged. You can't do too much with a stone house. And. Uh, Other houses in the Bat area also um, seem to follow the same pattern. Here we have uh, the Jacob T. Lansing house, and the, the uh, Lansing, one of the Lansing grandmothers, there's many Lansings, and Art Johnson would have to show you his genealogy to pick the one out that owned the, this land along the Bat Road. And she kept 13 acres for herself. There's no house there now. And divided up um, about 300 acres to her two grandsons. 
Now, uh, this one, uh, the small, the first level is uh, brick and dates about 1832. And then later you see the uh, well carved teardrop texture of the uh, wood and the heavy brackets and a cupola for, at that time, the beautiful view. And it is a beautiful view even today. Uh, there are two barns with this, and the, the best family own it, and it's been in their family for quite a while, and it's known as Cherry Hill Farm. And uh, these barns date 1876 and 1884, showing, again, the success of a farm to have uh, barns like this, and you have to remember how much time was spent in these buildings. Uh, this is the other Lansing uh, grandson's house, and uh, it certainly um, needs to, um, you need to use your imagination to think of its uh, grandeur, grandeur when it was first built. Uh, the, the left-hand side that's, that is not very, uh, it's not easily seen it was earlier, but again, we have the Greek revival style of a farmhouse and uh, sort of symbolic of a, life, a lifestyle since gone the agrarian society really uh, felt that this embodied what the republic was at that time and their feelings. Uh, here we have another house that's quite hidden. It has all new houses around it. You wouldn't even know it's there. It's just a little gem hidden back and uh, it's the former house of, of the Justice of the Peace Keller, who appears also in the 1866 map. Um, and through census records, we see many family members living in the same house. And that is probably why the front, which I just showed you, is the later edition, and the back possibly dates around 1776. And here we can see where the brick were fitted together for the new edition, which is, of course, more Italianate and in a later style. Uh, and then um, taking a right onto Haswell Road, we see the Haswell House. Um, this was painted in about uh, 19, in the early 1900s and sort of Grandma Moses tradition. Uh, John Haswell came over uh, on the Golden Gate sailing vessel uh, in about 1775, and also on the same boat was the Mark, Marks family. And these two families settled in the same area, first trying out other areas, such as Albany and then Cherry Valley. But because of the Indians moving back to Albany and then eventually setting, settling in Waterville. Now, this is the original uh, Haswell house. And in about the 1940s, we see uh, the house dramatically changed because of a disaster, such as hurricane-like uh, con weather conditions. And there are the houses today, and you wouldn't even really uh, be able to notice it driving by the, of what vintage it was. Uh, the south uh, part of the house and the upper floors were destroyed, and this is the front, which is now serves as the side, and uh, you can tell by the bricks, which are now painted, and the foundation. Uh, 
The Haskells had many, many children. Uh, five five uh, of John Haswell's sons married five Marks girls, and uh, two Haswell women married two Marks sons. So that's quite the uh, intermarriage. And you have this also appearing down the road, which is another Haswell house. And I think they needed a big house like this to uh, get some of the relatives someplace to live. Now, if you look directly across from the Haswell houses to um, the south, and you would eventually, if you could see it, see Johnson Road, and there would be the Marks house. And that is now gone. but. But the Marks also built uh, uh, a later house in about 1820, and uh, possibly for the widow Marks or uh, Ann Mark Hammond, because on one map it says Mrs. Hammond. And uh, through the uh, cemetery, the family cemetery is found here, the Marks. And, and others, we can really get a, quite a clear picture of the intermarriage and these early families' um, relation to, to each other, besides also the transactions on deeds. Uh, again, this house stands on a knoll, sits on a knoll, and there's a spring nearby, and you can understand why the site was chosen. Uh, the town. Now, uh, out of the Bout area and uh, to other parts of, towns we, of town, we see restaurants that have um, had earlier uses, and, and these buildings are now adapted. And um, they've, they've been given a new life, and sometimes the modernizing has changed it so much that we see uh, we lose completely the architectural detail, but many times the additions are very appropriate, and we do get um, quite a nice building that could pro probably not be reproduced at this time because things are so expensive. Here we have the uh, Minx, uh, George Minx uh, Shaker Hotel, and uh, it even appears on the 1851 map in the 18... 80s, it was a very popular place, an alternative uh, to uh, picnicking, or if you went to visit the Shaker site, which was only the Shakers, which were only uh, three quarters of a mile down the road, then you could stop here and have lunch or dinner. And that was known as Pals and Duncan's, and now Fiddles and Grog's, or The Hobbit. And uh, the lattice-like work and the two uh, story uh, porch is very uh, much representative of a resort type East Lake style, which um, was popular in the 1870s. Uh, today, it, it's, the porches are enclosed, and you can't even really uh, imagine the elegance that it once was. Uh, here we have the shipyard now, and sailing yachts incorporated in the back in the barn. This was the old Phillips homestead on uh, the Troy-Schenectady Road, and it's, uh, the proportions of the buildings are quite nice, and it's, it has uh, been completely renovated. Um, very much as the century house with appropriate additions, both uh, 
in the same farmhouse style of the 1820 circa. And this was an old home in 1873, and by uh, the 1950s it was changed and adapted for restaurant use. Now, if buildings aren't adapted or given new life, then we're going to lose them. And uh, sometimes they just outgrow their usefulness and um, are decided that, you know, they're, they're not, they're, they've just been outlived and if this isn't the case, then either vandalism, neglect, or um, being burned down are effects that happen to some structures besides just neglecting them. Now we have Smith's, uh, this, well, the town hall, which was originally, um, uh, <laughs> this, is, this says Canton's Hotel, and it was Canton's, but before that, it was called Cottage Lawn, and um, it was purchased by Charles Canton in 1895. And uh, it was tra he transformed it into quite a picturesque and popular summer resort and remodeled by the late Walter Van Geisling, who was a vi uh, distinguished Albany ar architect in the Japanese mo motif inside. And um, it was later Smith's Tavern, and then used by the state troopers and the uh, town hall was established there in 1830s, in the 1830s. And there it is. The Smith's Tavern looked just like this. It wasn't the town that remodeled it, trying to give it a more uh, colonial revival, uh, more symmetry with the, with the pillars and wings. And this was destroyed in the 60s, and the new one was built, which uh, is supposedly better. Now, we have back this I saved from the 1883 lithograph. This is on the, the corner of Osborne, uh, Old Niskayuna, Menans, and... Uh, Route 9, and it's the Bacon estate, and Samuel Bacon was the one that was, took Ireland's place in his wheelings and dealings, and he had this big mansion built in the mansard-type style, and uh, we see quite extensively the gardens, and uh, here is a turn-of-the-century uh, photograph of it, and there's the water tower in the back, and there's the water tower. And there it is in the 1920s after being burned and it's in the process of being ripped down and replaced in 1945 by the post office. Of course, Arnold Bryan couldn't handle it anymore because after he was only handling 200 uh, letter boxes and all of a sudden there was like 7,500 uh, to handle by the time this was built, or by 1962 at least. So there was cause for it, but then they didn't really, they seemed to outgrow this and move the post office somewhere else, so the uh, bank moved in. Now this is my, um, one of my last slides, and this is a very special place. It's the Hageman House, the Cornelius Hageman House, who owned a dry dock up by Vicious Ferry and the, uh, um, in the town of Half, moon. 
And uh, Dr. Whittingham Gorham, a resident of Loudonville, just um, was so taken and fell in love with this house, which had been lying quite abandoned. It was built in about the 1820s in beautiful federal style. And it was just in total disrepair. It doesn't even look that bad in this picture. But this is actually how bad it really was. Now, he bought it for a low, very low sum. And as an early preservation project, had it moved brick by brick to Ladenville. Now, the wings couldn't be moved because they were wooden. But the bricks and the style were recreated. And uh, it's now situate, it's situated in Ladenville in a very pretty spot. And it's owned by uh, Mr. and Mrs. Henry Elliott, Jr. And that's it today back in its glory and prominence. And the case here that I want to make is, is the imagination of Dr. Gorham to bring this place and save it and, and put it back into its uh, element of glory. And uh, I think other sites do not even take half this much uh, imagination or money. And that's why I think that more sites should be recognized and, and changed or adapted or at least restored. Thank you. We will entertain some questions now. We have no questions. Thank you very much, Barbara. Mm -hmm. And as is, is our custom, I would like to present to you a membership card to the Colony Historical Society. I kind of feel uh, like I'm bringing coals to Newcastle, but in any no, case, we certainly appreciate your very beautiful and fine presentation. Thank you. Well, I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Barbara and George, and uh, I think that almost wraps it up. Unless, are there any additional announcements that anyone has uh, to make? Okay, then uh, we will see you all again, if not before, on Wednesday, January 31st, for a special program on President Arthur and for our annual meeting, the annual uh, business meeting of the Society. So if we will now adjourn to the rear of the room, but not all in one fell swoop. Uh, we will partake of refreshments under the able guidance of Helen McPherson. Thank you very much for coming. <laughs>